It's my great pleasure to uh, introduce this, uh, this session. We're here to, uh, to welcome uh, the publication of the book by uh, Howard Davison and David Green, Banking on the Future, the Fall and Rise of Central Banking. Uh, Howard, of course, as I'm sure you all know, is director of the LSE. Before that, he was chairman of the FSA, and before that, the deputy governor of the Bank of England and a member of the Monetary Policy Committee. Uh, you could say that he knows as much as anyone in the world about the relationship between the two organizations, or if you're being less charitable, you could say that his hand is deep in the, uh, uh, the fundamentals of much of what it is that has been going on between those two organizations over uh, recent years. Now, to compliment Howard, of course, whose specialism is running organizations, we have uh, David Green, who is, I think, a real central banker and financial uh, regulator. Uh, he worked both at the Bank of England and at the FSA. I think between them they have developed a very productive uh, relationship in surveying the, uh, the fields that they have both worked in in the, in the past. So it gives me great pleasure to uh, ask them to speak. Howard is going to speak first and then David is going to speak after that. Howard. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Terry. And um, <clears throat> one thing I didn't expect uh, was that you would um, seek to go into the gory territory of uh, the tripartite arrangement between Bank and the FSA and the Treasury, which were so successful in 2007, um, particularly since you actually single-handedly wrote the MOU uh, <laughs> at that time. Uh, I remember us actually doing it sitting in your car outside my house um, at one time. But anyway, uh, I'm surprised you should have explored that uh, unsatisfactory bit of your past. <laughs> now, um, what, uh, what David and I are going to try and do is to give you a bit of a snapshot about <coughs> what's in the, uh, in the book, but try also to focus on very contemporary issues. Now, the book is not, in fact, a crisis polemic. And so, since, um, as both of us, as former regulators, our prime concern is to avoid mis-selling, um, we don't want you to think that that's what you're going to get. But this was actually originally conceived um, as rather a survey of developments in central banking over the last 20 years or so, the growth of inflation targeting, the growth of central bank independence, the way in which the architecture of central banks has changed, um, and also an attempt to integrate some of the academic perspectives on central banking. And here we had great help from... PhD student here called Nick Vivian, who helped us a lot with the, the literature, an attempt to integrate the sort of academic perspectives with the practitioner perspective. Um, but the crisis, of course, poses a big challenge to central banking and did inevitably influence the way this came out. But there are 12 major topics uh, in the book, and I, you know, they're not all that complicated, I think. If I do 10 minutes or so on each of them, um, we should cover it, cover it quite well. But uh, in fact, uh, what we're going to do is just really focus on two things. Uh, first, both of which we think are quite topical. And indeed, on the first one, um, I've had to rewrite things uh, today. Um, the first really is this complex of questions about asset prices, credit, macroprudential regulation, and monetary policy. Um, and David will then talk about economic and monetary union uh, unfinished business and he of course will speak in Greek um, we, we really take uh, the theme uh, of the book uh, from a couple of quotes which appear 
at the end. And in a sense, this is a kind of overarching uh, theme of the book. Uh, one of the authors, or two of the authors, might be happy with it. One of them may feel slightly nervous because he's sitting in the front row. Um, and that is that Adrian and Hyun Shin, who used to be here, is now at Princeton, said, we conclude the time is now ripe to redress the balance and bring financial institutions back into the heart of monetary economics. And indeed, Charlie Bean from the Bank of England similarly said <coughs> the other day, uh, we need to put credit back into macroeconomics in a meaningful way. And essentially, one of the strong themes of our book is that central banks, in a sense, should remember that they are actually banks and that the way in which they influence the economy is through their balance sheet and through their interaction with the financial uh, system. So that's the overarching theme, if you like. And this has been brought into sharp focus by what happened in the crisis. And, of course, in the crisis, many people have been blamed, and central banks have not escaped charges as well. And John Plender wrote a piece not long ago in the Financial Times, which was entitled, Blame the Central Bankers More Than the Private Bankers. And what was the essence of that charge? What is the charge <coughs> against central banks? Well, part of it uh, has been articulated perhaps most aggressively by John Taylor, uh, who argued that the Fed kept interest rates too low for too long after the dot-com boom and bust. And he has backed, if you like, the interest rate performance of the Fed out of his rule, uh, the Taylor rule, which you know, normally is regarded as a reasonably accurate sort of description of the central bank reaction function, and it demonstrates that the US in particular kept interest rates well below what would have been indicated by the Taylor rule during that period, and argues that this was a part of the background to the financial crisis. This, in fact, is taken from uh, Charlie Bean's uh, lecture and shows where the UK uh, and the Euro, uh, the ECB, figures against that. And you can see that in those cases, it's not so obvious that interest rates were held uh, too low for too long simply on the Taylor rule. But there is, of course, a related and slightly different critique of central banks, which is that they simply stood by and watched a lot of rather dangerous trends developing in the financial sector. And just to look very quickly uh, at that, you saw in the States particularly a huge expansion of banks' balance sheets during this period. This shows the hard line is total assets to tangible book uh, for the major US banks. And uh, one might add two or three other charts to this showing the parallel banking system, uh, in which also expanded, and credit expanded in the US in a very uh, dramatic way. Uh, if you look in the UK, you can see, this is a Bank of England chart, uh, the way in which bank leverage grew. I particularly appreciate the fact the bank is regularly publishes this chart, uh, because it shows that bank leverage began to expand rather rapidly in 2003, and I think it was just there that David and I left the FSA. Um, and I rather like uh, the fact the bank republishes this uh, extremely uh, regularly. Very helpful from my point of view. Um, but at the same time, uh, other measures of what was going on in the financial sector were that risk became seriously mispriced. This is the JP Morgan Global High Yield Index, 
which had a long-term average of 540 basis points over Treasuries, and then by June 2007 was well under half that. It's just one indicator, but a symptom of the way in which risk became significantly mispriced. So you saw credit expansion, risk mispricing, and asset price escalation as well. This shows real uh, house prices. It's a BIS chart uh, in the main countries affected with the UK, uh, of course, uh, leading the field. And at the same time, you saw household debt rise, and in fact, rose more quickly in the US even than in, in the UK, even than in the US uh, and in the Eurozone. So while all this was going on, while credit was expanding rapidly, both in, in banks and off balance sheet, and while asset prices were escalating dramatically, what were the central banks doing during this period? Well, we know the answer to that. They were writing financial stability reviews. Um, and Paul Tucker uh, recently said, financial stability reviews were perhaps admired by some, but made no difference. And again, I feel that uh, I can't escape any blame. I'm sure if I uh, tried to, Terry would call me to order, uh, because in fact, David Green and I invented financial stability reviews. The first financial stability review was published in the Bank of England in 1996, um, and I was, in a sense, the uh, originator and uh, editor of it. <coughs> but quite interestingly, during that period, the number of financial stability reviews published by central banks escalated uh, dramatically. And so the focus of writing about financial stability was undoubtedly there in central banks. And what difference does it make? Well, absolutely nothing. <coughs> Why was that? Well, partly, I think, because actually a lot of these uh, financial stability reviews were not very candid. Uh, this shows an assessment uh, done by a guy called Chihak, who's written rather interestingly in this area, of financial stability reports published by central banks against the IMF's financial stress indicators. I mean, there's a whole series of indicators that the IMF produced which say, you know, these are the sorts of things you might put in if you were measuring what was going on in your financial system. And actually, uh, many of these um, were, many of these financial stability reviews included less than half of the indicators that might have been thought relevant. Uh, and so many of them were, in fact, uh, Panglossian documents. But also, and this is something we go into in some depth in the book, there was no very clear definition of financial stability. Uh, Charles Goodhart has worked on this and has made it clear, looking at the way central banks talk about financial stability, it was extremely vague. The European Central Bank said recently in its review that financial stability needs the sustained intellectual investment that price stability has received. And I think it's probably fair to say that it is getting it now, but it didn't have it uh, in the period that we are interested in. And if you look at the contrast between price stability and financial stability, price stability is very easy to measure generally. Uh, it, uh, you have an instrument that you, broadly speaking, know affects it, subject to perhaps uncertain lags. The accountability framework for it can therefore be quite straightforward, uh, and etc. in terms of the forecasting procedure. In the case of financial stability, the definitions are very vague. Often the definitions used by central banks are to do with things that are not there. It's defined typically by uh, the absence of uh, events 
rather than the presence of them. And it's very difficult to adjust and typically also tends to be operating at the tails of the distribution. The things you're worried about are not the most likely outcomes, whereas in price stability you're clearly worried about the most likely outcome uh, most of the time. And so we argue that in order to make financial stability a reality, a central bank needs a robust set of indicators of financial stress. There is quite a lot of work going on on this at the moment. Charles Goodhart and others have produced metrics of financial stability. I'm sure they're not perfect, but it seems to me that unless a central bank is prepared to say what it is that it is trying to avoid, then it's not likely to be successful, that it needs to identify systemically important firms. It needs to patrol the regulatory frontier. Uh, and I think that's a big lesson in this crisis, that things were going on outside the regulated universe, which central banks were not as interested in as perhaps they should have been. To some extent, that was to do with regulatory arbitrage, which also needs to be looked at rather carefully. A lot of the special investment, uh, the SIBs and the SPVs, etc., were clearly established in order to avoid regulation. And we think that the bank should contribute to the assessment of the need for countercyclical capital requirements. Now, that is, of course, a big current issue, macroprudential regulation. And I'll come on to say a bit more about that in just a second. But let me just, before I do that, sum up the way we come out on the big uh, controversy in this area, which is, well, should the central bank attempt to do something about these trends in asset prices or, and in the growth of credit? And this tends in the literature now to be described as the leaning against the wind uh, argument. Um, and I have to say that our conclusion is strongly uh, that the central bank ought to be seeking to lean against the wind. And we tend to believe the arguments or support the arguments produced by people like Bill White and Claudio Borio of the BIS. Should the central bank, and we, uh, um, we propose a kind of taxonomy of thinking about this subject. The first question, which is often a red herring, typically central bankers who don't like this argument will caricature it as being, well, you can't target asset prices. We don't think you need to target asset prices. The central bank does not need to take an explicit view about where prices ought to be. But another question is, should the measure of inflation targeted include some element of house price inflation? And we think the answer to that is yes. Indeed, I think Mervyn King now thinks that as well, though there are plenty of arguments about precisely how you do that. Is it possible to identify bubbles and misalignments? This is possibly the core of the debate. Bernanke will typically still say, you cannot do this, and therefore what you do is mop up after the event. Alan Greenspan was most associated with that argument. In our view, you may not be it may not be possible with certainty to identify bubbles and misalignments, but is it any harder than the other judgments that you have to make, such as assessing the output gap when you're determining short-term interest rates. And in our view, it is not necessarily any more difficult than that. And that what we've now seen is the cost of not doing anything can be very great indeed. And on that point, therefore, we share Bill White's view, which is that monetary policy should be more focused on preemptive tightening to moderate credit bubbles than on preemptive easing to deal with the after effects. But then the question, the final question is, does the central bank need another tool, in other words, in addition to short-term interest rates? And there we think the answer is yes, 
but we are not comfortable with the way in which many central banks describe this argument, which is typically in this view, look, we're using short-term interest rates to deal with inflation, and so if you want us to do anything else on financial stability, you need to give us another tool to deal with that. And we don't think that that's the right way of thinking about it, because we think the two come together. So let me just conclude by saying something about this other tool, macro-prudential mechanism, how it might work, and how it interacts with interest rates. Why might we want a macro-prudential mechanism, which is, of course, in this world, the new, new thing? This is what people are now all talking about. Here are these quotes from a BIS report. There can be no guarantee that increased efficiency of intermediation at individual firm level will necessarily improve economic welfare. This, of course, is now current uh, debate, you know, how useful, how economically useful, um, and this is the BIS talking. Major source of concern derives from difficulties in pricing new instruments. Presumed superior liquidity of securitized assets may turn out to be a mirage. This is something, of course, that we learned rather painfully in 2007 and 2008. And they go on to say, an important question is whether innovation is added to or subtracted from the degree of volatility in financial markets. And a question is whether further financial innovation leads, in fact, to a growth in overall debt. So are we seeing that these exotic new instruments are, in fact, creating sort of credit bubbles uh, that we need to address with a new instrument? So this is, these, as you will recognize, are the new arguments that people are advancing. Unfortunately, these new arguments um, are actually old arguments. And all of these quotes are from a G10 governor's report in, Basel <laughs> in 1986, uh, which you may think was rather prescient uh, in terms of identifying the risks in these financial instruments. What was done about it at the time? Nothing. No agreement could be reached on how you might adapt your regulatory environment in order to cope with these risks. However, I think now we are in a position where there is a broad agreement that we do have to adapt the regulatory uh, environment uh, and that we have to find a new mechanism and think about it in a different way. And indeed, today, uh, in the Condemn Coalition uh, Agreement, um, we've now discovered, by the way, uh, it was Labour's financial crisis. This appears several times uh, in the definition. This is a new phrase that we now have to use. It's Labour's financial crisis. Um, and they say the regulatory system needs reform to avoid a repeat of Labour's financial crisis. Thank you. Uh, we agree to bring four proposals to give the Bank of England control of macroprudential regulation and oversight of microprudential regulation. And this is as close, probably, as George Osborne will get to accepting that his pre-election plan to abolish the FSA was ridiculous. Um, and I do presume that what this means is it's not going to happen. Um, but that the bank will have control of macroprudential regulation. And I think this is a good move, and indeed, uh, it is actually, remarkably, rather, well, it's almost exactly what we argue for in our book. But... I think the important thing is, for us anyway, is that macroprudential regulation must be considered alongside monetary policy. Now, why do we think uh, that, and why do we think this is going to be something of a change, or ought to be? Well, here I borrow some language uh, from privatised directives uh, from the central leader. We argue for an end to deviant brown bullseye single targetism. 
um, which is, and uh, Terry will recognize this, that right from 1997, there has been a view in, from Brown and Balls that you have to simplify things, you have to have one institution with one tool, one target, and that's it. And then you have another one, the FSA, with one tool, one target, and that's it. And this is part of the brown rhetoric throughout the last 13 years. And in our view, that is not the way things work. We are very happy with the idea of macroprudential policy within the Bank of England, but in our view, it makes a difference through material changes in the volume and price of credit as banks adjust their spreads. That is actually what happens. If you use capital regulation and you ratchet it up because of your concern about the overall development of credit in the economy and perhaps asset price bubbles related to that, that what you must be doing is altering the price of credit. You must be altering spreads because banks, it won't work, it won't mean anything unless banks respond to an increase in their capital requirements by increasing their lending rates. Now you may want to do that in a targeted way you may want to do that in relation to mortgage lending, for example. That would be entirely reasonable. But it must surely influence the monetary stance. It must be a way of influencing the monetary stance through a way other than short-term interest rates. So in our view, macroprudential regulation must be considered alongside monetary policy and not in this, well, we've got one instrument for this target and therefore we need another instrument for that target. That does not seem to us to reflect the way things actually are. So to conclude, we think that this narrow focus on retail price inflation can deliver suboptimal outcomes. We believe there is a persuasive case for leaning against the wind, but we recognize a lot more work is needed on the practicalities. We like financial stability as a statutory objective for the central bank, largely because it requires the central bank then to think about how to define it. We think the inflation target regime should therefore be interpreted in the light of that uh, objective. I have to say in this, I think we're not attracted by the IMF's argument that you just change the inflation target and bang it up, and indeed some of the logic of what we say would mean that in certain circumstances you would be undershooting uh, an inflation target, because there may be occasions when you would be seeking to tighten policy even when your short-term inflation objective was being met. We think a macroprudential mechanism is a useful addition to the toolkit, but must be considered alongside the short-term interest rate. Finally, as far as institutional supervision is concerned, we think the case for the central bank to be also an institutional supervisor is at best unproven, and indeed that a central bank, a strong central bank role in direct institutional supervision may result in less regulatory integration than is desirable, because few central banks are comfortable with extending their regulation outside the banking system. One or two have done so, but not so far with conspicuous success. So there may be something of a trade-off between regulatory integration, which we still think is sensible, and indeed there are some arguments from the crisis that suggest that actually regulatory integration is even more important than before because of the interaction between different sectors. Um, and putting banking into the central bank may make regulatory integration uh, more difficult. Uh, what do the central bankers, uh, certainly as represented by the Fed, say about all of this? Well, I put some of these points to Bernanke and he just laughed. Um, and that's perhaps uh, the response so far. But I do think that the change in uh, thinking in the 
central banks is developing. I think there is a lot more interest in defining financial stability and thinking about it clearly. The latest Bank of England paper on macroprudential mechanisms, how that might work, was, I think, a big move forward uh, in thinking about them and how they relate to conditions in the two economic conditions. But our central message is that we don't think that this should be considered as a separate box. It must be part of the monetary policy stance. That's the end of my bit. I'm going to hand straight over to David. A little bit of a change of pace and a, a change of uh, environment to, um, to Europe, unfinished business. Um, however, um, Howard, although it is true that Howard was rewriting his presentation this afternoon, I was rewriting mine yesterday. So um, the, um, there are a lot of, uh, of issues that we're talking about that uh, are very much, very much in the news. Um, we call our chapter in, on Europe in the book um, Europe a special case uh, and it is a very different central banking world for reasons I'll come to in a minute but at the same time uh, a lot of the questions uh, that are arising in the central banking uh, environment uh, are just as important, just as vivid and perhaps more difficult to deal with um, in, the, in the euro system so we've got whether inflation is more important than stability in the financial system, is there a trade-off kind of questions that Howard has just been talking about, um, whether monetary policy can be looked at in a separate box from fiscal policy, um, where sometimes it has been thought that you can leave monetary policy to get on and do its own thing, and fiscal policy will do its thing and everything will be all right. Um, that obviously isn't the case. And then there's the role the central bank should have in supervision, which is a subtle, um, uh, difficult question, uh, which Howard has also touched on. Um, what I'm hoping to do uh, is to um, try and tell a little, a little bit of a story of the history of the, of the euro uh, leading up to um, um, how we got to, to where we are now and, and what, it, what it all means. Um, as we say, it's, it's a special case. It's a very special case uh, for a number of reasons. Um, it's a federation of national central banks. Each of the central banks has a governor appointed by their national government, uh, often endorsed by their parliament. But the minute they get involved in central bank matters such as monetary policy formulation or monetary policy implementation, they have nothing to do with their national parliament at all. They are not accountable, they are independent, and they are in the world of the ECB, um, which is the most independent and least uh, democratically accountable of, of all central banks. Um, this has involved um, huge institutional change. Um, you can't, certainly don't want to go into the detail of that, but in a, in a federal system, I use the word federal in a rather general sense. There are all kinds of issues which have to be resolved about who does what, what should be done at the center, what not, 
should everything be the same everywhere or is it okay to do things differently in different places? Um, and um, I won't spend time on that. Um, but there is a little question about if efficiency in, in all of this. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we did turn up, and, and you'll find a very nice little chart in the book, um, is um, you know, how many central bankers per head of population you know, do you need to run central banking? Um, and the answer in the UK is 31 uh, people per million of population. The answer in France is 220. In Greece, it's 279. And in Luxembourg, it is 446. Um, and uh, we have a quite a long discussion in the book about you know, how we got to this situation and whether this is really OK or not. Um, but the, the more important question is um, the whole structure of the, of the euro, um, which was very much discussed at the time it was created, um, and in the last uh, couple of weeks has been talked about again. Um, one of the things that, uh, that we know for certain, and Howard and I were in some of these discussions, is that some of the key decision makers um, in the euro area who took the decision to embark on this project did not understand how it worked. Uh, we know that for sure. Um, the, um, uh, we know that uh, political motives and, and economic attractions that were very easy to demonstrate and which were indeed achieved um, were, were paramount in the decisions. Um, it was known at the time that this was supposed to be a marriage without the option of divorce um, and that was supposed to be a great advantage. Uh, because it forced uh, the partners in the project to keep talking to each other because they really had no other option. Um, and this would reduce, perhaps eliminate the possibility of war in Europe. Uh, and it would, it would mean that countries kept on having to do business with each other. Now we're not so sure. Um, the, the fact that it's terribly difficult to get out of this deal uh, is causing um, riots in the streets and we may not heard the end of, um, uh, of, of real uh, social difficulty, perhaps even, perhaps even violence. Um, we know for certain, this is one of the things we, we know, is that a number of the key players, the heads of government who signed this arrangement, did not understand that there will be one short-term interest rate uh, <laughs> everywhere. Uh, and we know um, from direct evidence that one of the senior heads of state involved when asked this question by a British Prime Minister, what do you think about the single interest rate, said, what do you mean there'll be a single interest rate? No, there won't. There'll be interest, different interest rates in different countries the way they are now. Um, the, it was not widely understood, and certainly not much talked about, um, that in the monetary union, a government could run out of cash. Uh, literally run out of cash. It would not have money to pay its army, uh, to pay its staff, uh, to pay for anything. Um, and that had been forgotten about until about three weeks ago. But of course it was part, it, it was part of the arrangement. Um, and because there wasn't an understanding of the first point, um, although there was a lot of talk about the need for fiscal discipline, it wasn't taken very seriously. 
And as soon as the arrangements for fiscal discipline came under pressure, um, the first countries to say, well, maybe we don't need to take this so seriously were France and Germany, which didn't set a very good example. Um, these, a lot of people knew about these problems, but they hadn't really been uncovered. They started to be uncovered um, after the uh, crisis really uh, began to unravel in the autumn of 2008, and the commissioner responsible for uh, economic policy in the EU um, concluded publicly that uh, EMU was unfinished business. Um, it had always been known that with the kind of arrangements that have been put in place, um, the different parts of the uh, monetary union would need to maintain competitiveness uh, one way or another um, because the, without that, um, the tools of devaluing or lowering interest rates um, were just simply not available. Um, credit could expand, as it did in Spain and in Ireland, by quite extravagant amounts uh, because interest rates weren't available to deal with credit expansion. Uh, it was cross-border funding of deficits on very substantial scales, but it looked as everything everything was okay. Um, inflation wasn't too bad and uh, was actually quite good, uh, and growth was, was satisfactory. That came to an end, um, and um, Mervyn King has uh, had this uh, catch expression, uh, the nice decade, non-inflationary, consistently expansionary decade. It came to an end. Um, and with it coming to an end, um, these fault lines were uncovered. And suddenly, um, in the last few months, um, people began to remember things like governments could run out of cash. And that might mean they might not repay the money that uh, had been lent to them. Um, the, these concerns were targeted at the countries that it was worked out had got themselves into most difficulty. And um, you don't need to pay much attention to the numbers. Um, but this shows the very different uh, way in which countries had evolved over this period. They were supposed, economic performance was supposed to converge. Uh, but what this does, it shows that countries like Germany had managed to lower their um, uh, labor costs uh, very effectively and at the same time increase their exports, whereas uh, countries like Italy um, had actually uh, had very uh, substantial deterioration in their export position, or Ireland had a huge increase in, in costs. And people began to notice that was a little group <coughs> in that uh, corner there. And um, they got this little name. Um, and um, pigs may possibly uh, may be spelt with two eyes. And I, I do have to remember the presence in the uh, uh, audience tonight of the representative of the Bank of Italia. So I will be a little bit careful here. Um, but there are, there are some objective measures that could be used um, to look at country vulnerability. Um, 
and indeed uh, that the alphabetical order isn't quite right, but you can see where the uh, Greece, Portugal, Ireland, Italy and Spain do look as if they're in a bit of a group together for vulnerability. Um, there wasn't much monetary policy could do about this. Um, as Howard was saying in his own remarks, central banks really have got their balance sheet there, which they can expand and contract, change the composition of, uh, and they can, uh, they can use persuasion to explain things to people or to try to persuade them to behave differently. Um, this was not working very well. Um, they, uh, of course, understood that there were these difficulties with the fiscal position, uh, but finance ministries didn't take very kindly uh, to be uh, being told that uh, their uh, activity was at the root of some of these problems, uh, and the ECB was intend, instead told to uh, expand the uh, uh, money supply. Um, of course, um, the crisis that we're all very familiar with uh, came on very quickly. Uh, various ideas uh, uh, were um, generated. Maybe there should be some direct intra-country lending uh, to deal with the uh, first the problem of Greece, but to have ready for maybe some of these other countries. Multilateral loans, International Monetary Fund, of course, was already there. Maybe a European Monetary Fund should be created very quickly. Um, Maybe there should simply be gifts, transfers, to, to deal with the problem. Um, this uh, is, is a subject that uh, is not talked about very much other than in German parliaments, where they have realized that although you might start off with a loan, if it doesn't get paid back, it turns into a gift. Um, the... Um, and, and the, the financial system was affected. Of course, we'd had this crisis in the financial system of the uh, previous two years. Um, a number of reforms had been uh, proposed and were in course of, are in course of introduction. Uh, the ECB figured in those um, and became the base for the European Systemic Risk Board, which brought together all the central banks in the EU so that's including uh, the Bank of England and the other uh, out countries, uh, as well as all the main supervisors. Um, this uh, organization hasn't attracted a lot of attention, but uh, Howard and I are rather attached to it um, because um, the European Commission will go around uh, telling people, not without uh, some foundation in uh, fact, uh, that it was actually Howard and I who um, drafted uh, the proposal that uh, La Rosière um, uh, took up. Um, so that, that meant that with the ECB had a uh, major role in coordinating thinking about systemic risk. The ECB, including for these purposes, uh, the Bank of England, the Swedes, and the Poles, and so on. Um, the exposure of the European banks to the countries uh, under threat of course, um, accelerated uh, concerns in this area. And uh, as we know, last weekend, uh, the ECB took a number of actions um, to uh, provide support to markets and effectively to, uh, to banking systems uh, by uh, 
not only being standing, standing ready, but actually uh, to buying um, uh, bonds issued by um, uh, euro area governments, um, which um, helpfully meant that their price didn't go down as much as it might otherwise have done, uh, which meant that the balance sheets of banks holding them um, looked much stronger than they otherwise would have done. And it also activated over the weekend arrangements uh, effectively to be able to make ava available dollars uh, to banks which might be uh, exposed to a run. Um, so a lot has happened, a lot has happened in the last, uh, last five days in fact. This will affect the functioning of the Euro system. There's been a lot of talk, a lot of you have read about it. What, uh, what is this ECB that is engaging in these activities, that has apparently started to print money even though it wasn't supposed to, uh, that has been lending to some countries but not others, um, and what political justification is this? Um, its, its decisions are pretty transparent. Nobody knows what's said in decision-making meetings. Uh, the votes are not disclosed. And there were very good reasons for this. Uh, but now this may be a little bit of a problem. Uh, and we know, I think for the first time, and the central bankers here can correct me later if that's the case, um, but decisions in the ECB um, have always been taken, it is understood, by consensus in the governing council. Um, we have been told that this last weekend there wasn't a consensus, there was a majority vote. Um, and that clearly takes us into, into new territory. Um, so it may be that this independence and lack of accountability, uh, which was there for very good reasons when the euro was started, could start to turn into a problem. Um, so where are we? Um, there's been an argument all along that the euro uh, needed common fiscal arrangements of one kind or another, um, but there was no agreement to um, put them in place. Um, they have, in a way, already been put into place. Uh, there, there are common arrangements which will uh, at least lead to lending uh, between countries on a common basis, and perhaps even gifts if this lending doesn't work properly. Um, and there are arrangements for, uh, for policing um, the uh, fiscal policy of, uh, of the member states. So we, whether you can call it a common fiscal policy or not, it, you can discuss. Uh, but we're certainly in a very different position today from where we were last Friday. Um, monetary policy is clearly focusing on the financial system rather than, than in inflation. Maybe that's okay for now, but if inflation rates rise for whatever reason, that will, uh, will be a challenge. Uh, voting may be much more of an issue in the ECB than it's in the past. It has already started to get more closely involved in supervision. Uh, this will certainly con continue with the, the cross-border business of banks in Europe intimately uh, tied up with the behavior of the macroeconomy. What about the UK? Um, well, um, the Eurogroup of finance ministers, the, the ministers of the Euro area countries, which it exists for a very long time, is now a place where very serious decisions are made. 
um, and the UK is not part part of this group. Um, and uh, as you will have uh, read in today's paper, a former um, European minister uh, for France had drawn attention to the fact that uh, the UK's failure to participate uh, in some of these support arrangements, although no other non-Euro area countries like Poland and Sweden did, will not be forgotten. Um, the, so the UK's position uh, in Europe has changed. Bank of England, we, we have representatives of the Bank of England here who may want to speak to this later, um, but the, the, the system for dealing with uh, systemic risk within Europe does include the bank. Uh, it was deliberately set up for, uh, uh, for that reason. Um, this will become an important mechanism. Um, and I think uh, with London as, uh, as the, still Europe's financial center, um, the, um, our little uh, subtitle for the book, uh, The Fall and Rise of Central Banking, uh, may have a little demonstration in this area. That's the end of my remarks, thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, David and Howard. Uh, as I said at the beginning, my, my job is, is here is to introduce the speakers, to chair the, uh, the discussion. However, over the course of the weekend, uh, Howard told me that he'd been unable to find anybody to be discussant of this, uh, this book. <laughs> Nobody was prepared to read it. And so would I say a few words before I opened it up to, uh, to discussion? And so instead of watching all of that endless television about uh, the, uh, the resolution of the election, I did try to... Uh, read uh, much of it, uh, and I thought I'd just make a few comments before uh, we turn into the discussion and the question and, uh, and answer. Uh, as has been said, uh, one of the themes of the book, of course, is the whole issue of the fact that whereas policy decisions and the analytical basis for those decisions are very important, so are the structures and processes of the organisations concerned. And I think. The book is important and it does a very interesting and I think very success, a successful attempt to try to bring together both aspects of these issues as far as central banking is, is concerned. So it does look both at the issues to do with interest rates, to do with macroprudential supervision, to do with some of these issues to do with Europe, but it also spends some time on the organisation and structures that are involved in making those decisions and putting them into practice and to what extent the organisations and the organisational structures have got in the way uh, sometimes in, uh, in making the decisions. Of course, one of the principles, as we know, of all structures and organisations is that one has to try to be as clear as possible about who is responsible for uh, what and who they're accountable to. And as Howard pointed out in his introduction, what we have seen over the past uh, 10 or 15 years has been this search for institutions that have single objectives and single uh, instruments. But of course what we also know about organisations is that you can never design organisations in that way. There is always some kind of overlap or underlap or ambiguity of responsibility and you just can't have that kind of, of clarity. And one of the issues that I think does come out very strongly in the, in the book of course is that when it comes to government and indeed the arms of government that government uh, deals with, they are essentially rather poor at cooperating. And we see that this is one of the issues that does re-emerge in the book uh, from time to time. And indeed, 
does lie at the heart to some degree of how the responsibilities are, are organized. We saw this, I think, in great clarity with the tripartite arrangements uh, during the, uh, the crisis. It has been necessary for people to, to cooperate, but there is this difficulty of people cooperating if they, they, they think that it is not their direct responsibility. And I think in terms of the, of the future and how one organizes these affairs, given the extent to which there are these very large and overlapping responsibilities of the Treasury, in this country, the Treasury, the Financial Services Authority, and the Central Bank. This is an area that is an issue that's not going to uh, go away. And as we've seen, you know, the proposal of the Conservative Party was to try to solve this problem by, well, by bringing the FSA under the, uh, the, uh, the control of the Bank of England. I think the proposal that has emerged uh, today is, uh, is one which takes us back into the area of beginning to try to decide where certain boundaries uh, exist. The reality is, of course, it's made part of the, the part of the chapter in which Howard and David mount this very stout defence of why the FSA should exist and why it, it shouldn't be in the arms of the Bank of England uh, has become out of date before you've read the, uh, uh, the book. Of course, his explanation is that they've managed to persuade the people concerned that they were wrong and they have changed their mind just in, uh, in time. The second... Uh, issue I think which uh, he's outlined and which I think does come out very strongly from, from the book uh, is uh, the whole issue of trying to explain why we found ourselves in this period of extraordinary financial instability and the extent to which there is a subject called macroprudential policy which was ignored and which didn't play a sufficiently uh, large uh, part. And this whole issue of the extent to which it does exist as a subject or whether it's just something in the in the minds of those who are looking for a solution following the events that we have had and whether it's something that is distinct from the MPC has gone into in a lot of detail and I think is a fascinating uh, debate. Uh, for myself I think they do make a convincing case of why there is a separate subject but I do fear that actually when it comes to implementing it there are many issues and many problems, many which are recognised in the book but which uh, personally I have some uh, concerns about. In the experience that I had in the, uh, in the Treasury, uh, I think one you know, came to the conclusion that many cycles had some common characteristics, but I think what was common about all of them was that they were almost impossible to predict when these bubbles emerged and when they were going to become a real problem. Now, by their nature, of course, they, these events do arrive out of the clear blue sky, but in retrospect, the case I would make is that they're usually you can see that they've been a very long time in the, in the making. And typically, they've involved a long period of build-up. Uh, the problems have been recognized, some of them, but in general, they get explained away by other factors and whereby one can't, you know, the whole argument that somehow we found ourselves on a better trend and the things that look as if they're beginning to cause problems you know, should be put down to special factors. So you get rising commodity prices that are explained away by shortages, rising house prices by demographics and planning restraints, rising credit as explained by financial sophistication and, and rising asset prices or, or rising financial activity, you know, supposed to be a reflection of the success of, of spreading risk around the, uh, the economy. And you know, it is when we reach that point, typically, where we have a whole series of explanations as to why those things that might be thought to be troublesome uh, exist and we run out of explanations as to why they're all separate and identifiable factors, of course, that we then suddenly find that we have 
during this period of debate found ourselves in, uh, in a, difficult, uh, a difficult spot. Just a roundabout way of saying that you know, discretion doesn't have a good record when it comes to identifying bubbles, identifying cycles in the economy. Uh, and so whereas I've got a lot of sympathy with the idea of macroprudential policy, I still you know, find it difficult to believe that those who are exercising the discretion on macroprudential policy are going to make that much better fist of it than those who are trying to identify it in relation to interest rate uh, policy. They make a very good case, I think, as to why it is difficult to make this automatic. Some people are writing about this, uh, and when it runs into trouble, almost certainly there will be uh, problems with it, and automatic systems do come under some uh, stress. But I only hope that people are not going to think that the exercise of discretion in the future is going to be done on a wider basis than it has been in the, uh, in the past. Again, as Howard, uh, I think, has remarked in his, uh, said in his remarks this evening, and it's uh, a very important issue that they go into in, in a lot of detail, is about the, the whole question of the proposals that have been made as far as capital structures for banks are concerned and of, uh, of liquidity uh, requirements. But again, as, uh, as I mentioned uh, this evening, one of the big issues here is about scrutinising the regulatory boundary because we talk a great deal about capital ratios for banks and yet, as he points out, one of the big issues that uh, arose during the, uh, the build-up to the, the crisis was the growth of, of balance sheet items and the extent to which the financial system is constantly trying to game it and is trying to find ways around the capital uh, rules. And unless one is prepared to take on some of those issues it is very difficult, but it's very difficult to do it for countries on their own. You know, can you imagine the fuss that would have been in the UK if, if we had sought to, uh, to stop any of the off-balance sheet uh, vehicles emerging and the whole argument that it would be making us uncompetitive. So you know, I'm going over, in a sense, familiar ground, but uh, in constructing these ideas, and I think in constructing some of the thoughts about different parts of policy, I think we do have to be uh, really quite sceptical about the ability sometimes to identify these problems, to identify the extent to which there is a problem which is not, uh, which, which is separate from structural change and from people's underlying belief that somehow or other the world is going to be a better uh, place. The title, of course, is, and my final point is, it's, it's, it's a lovely title, I think, The Fall and Rise of, of, of Central uh, Banking. As Howard was so unkind to uh, remark at the, at the beginning, uh, he and I were heavily involved in the arrangements in 1997 when we tried to work out how it was, along with, uh, with uh, Eddie George, uh, we tried to work out how the new structure would exist with the financial supervision being taken from uh, the Bank of England and moved to the FSA. And actually that did get us in to the whole debate, and I was actually holding the ring here between the Treasury, uh, the FSA and the Bank of England, the whole debate about actually what was the role of the Bank of England other than in relation to the MPC. And I think one of the, the things that is recognisable now is the extent to which the functions of the Bank of England other than in relation to interest rates and the Monetary Policy Committee, how they were understated during that uh, period. Uh, you know, there was an argument about the extent to which the bank should be involved in markets, the extent to which it should have the powers of lender of last resort, how far the Bank of England itself should be involved in financial stability. But there, you know, there was a powerful thread of argument that said, well, nowadays, really, central banking was not necessary. We, you know, markets uh, worked. All we required is that they should conduct monetary 
policy uh, well, and that basically we could, uh, you know, we let them have a little bit of, uh, of a function of financial stability, but it wasn't something we should spend too much time on. And I think what the crisis has done, of course, and this is where central banking is now rising again, is that one of the important things it's done, of course, has been to demonstrate just how critical central banking is. And, you know, it may be that for decades or two decades, three decades, it has little part to play because everything is relatively stable. But when problems do emerge, central banking does demonstrate that it is something that really does uh, matter. The problem, of course, is that generally the people who were around at the time of the last crisis are no longer around, and much of it has to be worked out uh, again. And I think we have learned a great deal this time about lender of last resort, about quantitative easing, about support for uh, markets, and about capital regulation and, uh, and, and, and the liquidity uh, regime. So I think whatever the damage that might have been done by the crisis has been to the economy and to the reputations of, uh, of many people, despite the fact that there are some who blame central banks for this, I think as the book uh, in sense implies, central banking paradoxically seems to have come out of all of this rather well as far as uh, its reputation is concerned. So I advise you to read the book. It's going to be on sale. I don't know if it's on sale outside. How it is, and David, are willing to uh, sign copies, would you believe, and we will have a drink for you when, um, uh, in order to hold you there whilst uh, you queue up for the, uh, for the signing uh, ceremony. But that is for later. What I want to do now is to throw the uh, debate open to the floor and invite other people to comment on either what they've heard today or some of the things that they think might be or not be in the, uh, in the book. Thank you very much. Charlie. <coughs> uh, thanks. Char Charlie Bean, Bank of England. Um, I've got three um, points I thought I'd uh, make in response to your very interesting remarks. The first two relate to Howard's uh, presentation and the last one to, to EMU. Um, in, in Howard's presentation, um, some of the time you talked about asset prices, some of the time you talked about debt. Um, I have to say, I think that the focus of quite a lot of the thinking in this area on asset prices and uh, identifying asset price bubbles and uh, all of that is a bit misplaced. If you look at the history of banking crises, the ones that are really nasty are basically ones that are associated with a massive build-up of credit leverage, so forth. And that's what we really care about stopping. Uh, now, it's often true that those sorts of uh, credit booms are associated with asset price uh, booms as well. So uh, the asset price is a symptom. But I think the key thing is to be uh, focusing on the, the credit build-up. Um, and as an example where... Um, you didn't have so much credit build-up, but you had an asset price boom. You look back at the 87 uh, stock market uh, boom bust. Now, at the time, people overestimated the adverse impact that that might have on the economy because they were overly focused on the asset price element. Uh, the second remark is in connection with this question of uh, whether you can uh, assign macroprudential and monetary policy to different institutions or different committees or something like that, where you seem to make the argument that uh, macroprudential policy will affect credit growth and affect macroeconomy and therefore uh, there's a necessary interrelationship with monetary policy. 
that's true, but I think it's a non sequitur to move from that to say that you can't uh, assign the instruments to separate uh, bodies of separate institutions. If you think of a fiscal monetary policy uh, question, uh, fiscal and monetary policy uh, both affect the uh, degree of internal disequilibrium in the economy and the degree of external disequilibrium. But nevertheless, uh, we've managed to operate very successfully since 1997, a world where uh, the, uh, the Treasury sets fiscal policy, the MPC sets monetary policy. The reason that works is because there, there's a clear objective that can be set for monetary policy committee and uh, the fiscal authorities that understand how reactions function. Now, I think the problem in the um, macroprudential environment is at this juncture, we don't know what the objective is of macroprudential. Some people think it's just to ensure that uh, you take account of the systemic uh, externalities from uh, individual uh, banks' decisions. Others see it as something that has a, uh, a specific macroeconomic <coughs> role of uh, reining back these uh, credit leverage booms that I was talking about earlier on. Uh, people are still debating what the instruments are. Should it be capital ratios, risk weights, uh, margin requirements, so forth. Um, and I think we need to sort out the objectives and the instruments before you can then move on to the analytic question about is there any way of sending it up so that you could have these um, uh, have macro credential and monetary policy mm -hmm. done by separate uh, bodies or to what extent they need to be coordinated. So I think that's an open analytic question. And anybody looking for a PhD topic in the mm -hmm. audience, I think it's a good one to think about. Uh, the third remark was just in connection with what's been happening over the weekend. And David suggested that uh, we've now got the fiscal union, the monetary union needed fiscal flows and so forth. Um, I think it's important to remember that what's been put in place over the weekend is a temporary arrangement. It's been justified under Article 122.2 uh, of the Lisbon Treaty, which is was set up basically to cater for natural disasters. Um, and actually putting in place something that's permanent will require uh, modifications to the treaty and uh, I think it would be quite a, uh, a long slog to do that. And nevertheless, I think what's been happening has made people realise the importance of those, those, that mechanism. Um, but the other thing that's to be said is that having fiscal flows between uh, regions from idiosyncratic shops or something uh, is not everything you need. You also need a mechanism to facilitate the uh, adjustment of competitiveness. Um, you had that great chart which shows the, the marked divergence of competitiveness between regions. Uh, and you need to do something which enables uh, the, the countries affected, at the moment we're obviously talking about uh, the periphery countries, regaining competitiveness uh, at not too excessive a cost. So there's an unanswered question there for the monetary union. Thank you very much, sir. Two questions over here. Thanks. I wanted to ask about cross, the regulation of cross-border banking. Bearing in mind the ICE-SAVE case, how do you think that the basic distinction between branches and subsidiaries, with branches meant to be 
um, regulated by the home country and subsidiaries meant to be regulated by the host country. How do you think that distinction should now be uh, changed uh, so as to reduce the kind of uh, the risk of ice save type crises? And next, just along. Hi, I'm Olaf Staubeck, the economics editor with Germany's Handelsblatt. Um, I have a question for Howard Davies um, regarding your point on uh, the, the question if do central banks need a new instrument for dealing with financial stability. I'm wondering what your suggestion means for, for uh, um, consumer price inflation, given the fact that um, CPI was quite low in, in the last couple of, of years, in the last decades. Um, your, your proposal probably would, would lead to, to a tighter monetary policy. So do we face the risk of yeah, even lower inflation rates and probably the risk of uh, yeah, being going into, into a deflation in a, in a recession earlier? Thanks, Daniel. Should we <coughs> take those questions? Uh, yeah, uh, well, if I, get, if I get first choice, I'll yes. do the easy ones and then yeah, David, and then David one. um, the uh, Well, I think the first point, uh, Charlie, uh, on um, credit and asset prices, I completely agree with you. I think credit is the most important thing. Um, asset prices you know, can often be an indicator of that. I think you want to interpret the one in light of the other, obviously, but I do think credit is, is right. Um, <coughs> on, the, on the second point, though, well, I think that's probably the nub of the disagreement between us that you've identified, in that I don't... If now, as of um, this morning, um, the bank appears to have control, according to the policy statement, uh, that's been issued of macroprudential regulation. The, the word is control. Um, now, if you accept, as you do, that increasing aggregate capital ratios across the board, which is what this would mean, would have an effect on the monetary stance and on uh, credit conditions, I, I find it quite difficult to see why you have one committee down at one end of the corridor of the bank that makes that decision, another committee down at the other end of the corridor, which operates in a completely different way with totally different transparency and voting procedures and everything. And I suppose, you know, it's Paul Tucker, is it, as Deputy Governor of Financial Stability, rushing from yeah. one uh, committee to the other, bringing the hot foot, the news that they have increased capital ratios and therefore you don't need to increase interest rate. And you can't say that you wouldn't be interpreting the one in the light of the other. You must be. And so I just think that this um, is a somewhat artificial distinction. And over time, if you set up a financial stability committee with macroprudential and monetary policy committee, you know, it's going to be very complicated, uh, the one and the other. And I think that David and I convinced ourselves eventually that this uh, old um, sort of division of the bank into the two wings, you know, monetary stability and financial stability, and never the twain should meet, um, was wrong. And that actually we need to think about bringing these two back uh, together again, because it seems to us that they do interact uh, in a um, complicated way. Um, if, I leave, if, I, if I leave the EMU and, yeah, and Robert Wade's question on regulation to David, and then just ask, answer that, mm -hmm. the, the question from the Handelsblatt. Yes, I think I did allude to this very briefly, but if you read um, Bill White's latest paper, you know, he does accept that there could be circumstances in which if you identified 
a very rapid growth in credit, as Charlie was talking about, and you said, well, we are going to engage in a bit of preemptive tightening because we are worried about the risks of this credit bubble, that you might be in a situation where you then undershot your inflation target. And you would need to explain that in terms of risk management, effectively. You would need to be explaining that you had identified the, the potential risks of this credit bubble, and therefore you were going to undershoot your target in order to buy insurance, if you like, against this creating uh, problems when it exploded. It would be the reciprocal of the uh, mopping up theory, if you like. It's preemptive tightening versus, if you like, preemptive easing, as, as Bill White describes it. So, yes, we would acknowledge that there is that. Uh, possibility, and it would need to be quite uh, carefully explained. Um, actually, just still on on the same point. Uh, of course, I mean you could you could could finish up with um, uh, undershooting on inflation, um, but the risk of not doing that is undershooting on growth, and of course that's what we've what happened. Of course, there weren't growth targets, but nevertheless. Uh, I mean, the growth uh, performance has been pretty unsatisfactory as a consequence of these, uh, these affairs. I also think that if, if policy was cast in different terms, for instance, if central banks were to say explicitly that in thinking about policy, they were going to have regard to uh, a different range of factors, then this is likely to affect behaviour through inflations, uh, through expectations in, in a rather different way. Um, on the um, on the EMU questions, um, I mean, I think all these these points uh, uh, are indeed valid, uh, and it is true that this one, two, two of natural disasters and any other, anything else nasty that happens um, is temporary. Um, but of course, the I suppose I was leaping ahead and saying, getting out of this temporary situation. Um, you would, there would be no alternative to put a different mechanism in place. You're quite right to say we don't know what this mechanism is. Um, I think I'd, I'd say there'll be no alternative but to, to devising something. Um, the competitiveness uh, issue, uh, you're quite right. I mean, I, I, I didn't address that. And unless that is addressed, and there are a whole set of issues about uh, um, structural change, uh, incomes policy, perish the thought, um, which are quite outside the uh, fiscal, uh, the matter of fiscal issues. So that indeed is, a, is another area that, that uh, is essential to, uh, to deal with, um, to move forward. On, on the question about um, cross-border banking uh, without any kind of host country control, uh, this is a very difficult one. Um, the assumption about allowing branching cross-border by banks. And, and I have to say, um, the idea of branches cross-border, I mean, it's quite, I think, more or less unique to banking. You know, we don't talk about branches of anything else, really. Um, but uh, the idea of, uh, of allowing uh, branching uh, does depend on the, um, the home country uh, being believed to stand ready to, um, to rescue a bank. And the presumption had been for many, many years uh, that no country 
would really want to take the risk of not rescuing their banks because all kinds of dire consequences would follow. What hadn't been thought through was the possibility that the country might not be able to rescue its banks, uh, which is what happened in Iceland, and dire terribly dire consequences have indeed um, occurred for the uh, population of Iceland. I, th I think this is a very difficult one. Uh, I don't think we can, we can stop thinking about it. Um, within Europe, you could envisage um, all kinds of solutions of the kinds that some are arguing. Maybe we need some kind of fund at a European level to deal with this kind of situation. And everybody pays money in advance, uh, so there would be a pot of money to deal with you know, the case of calm pain. Um, uh, you could have supervision undertaken completely centrally so that at least everybody was implicated uh, collectively in, in supervision. This doesn't work on a global basis. Um, I don't think there are easy answers uh, to this. Um, uh, uh, but, but isn't the pressure isn't the pressure for retail banking to become subsidiaries now becoming very, very strong? Well, it is becoming very strong, but um, as you uh, know... I know to my As you know, um, it's been strong for quite a long time, actually. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it has suited um, a, an international bank uh, to have its retail operations centrally subsidiarised for, for various uh, reasons. Uh, there was an expectation that actually within the EU they would turn into uh, into branches, but I I think there will be continuing pressure for separate capitalisation. It's very reasonable if you're a government worried about your citizens. Um, you're going to find it very difficult to explain, as indeed the Brit British and the uh, Dutch governments have found, to explain that unfortunately you were relying on, on, on this other government to do the right thing, and it didn't. Um, uh, and, and I think the pr pressure for subsidiarisation is going to be very difficult to resist. And particularly with living wills. Mm. Um, yes. Um, I'm Caroline Benham from Bloomberg News. Um, on the question of these new macroprudential tools, I was just wondering um, what both Howard and David thought about some of Adair Turner's comments a couple of months ago now about what these tools might look like, um, either dynamic provisioning of a kind or uh, controlling lending to certain sectors of the economy like commercial real estate. Are those the kind of tools that you envisage or are there other things that you had in mind? Howard, I was very interested by your proposition of financial stability. I think that's clearly an important thing. But you also mentioned the problem of measuring it, uh, mentioning Charles's work. Um, I'm wondering what makes you quite optimistic that in a sort of post-crisis period we'll see uh, regulators actually having, you know, leaning against the wind when clearly it's difficult at this time. Takamas, uh, 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 yeah. <coughs> the, the bank of Japan, and can I ask uh, the, um, Mr. Uh, Howard Davis and the, on the um, uh, relationship between uh, the um, monetary policy and macroprudential policy? And uh, you mentioned about that the um, the um, macroprudential policy and includes the uh, monetary policy, I think. <coughs> and, and I share th such kind of um, 
what we're thinking. And in the case of the Bank of England, and the Bank of England is now pursuing the inflation targeting. And what do you think that the, um, uh, do you think that this kind of framework, policy framework, conflicts with the um, uh, macroprudential policy? If, if the Bank of England want to use the interest rate policy uh, to, to stabilize the financial system. Uh, so I have a first go, and if David wants to add anything. Um, uh, in answer to the first question, um, I think um, I mean, the, the, the debate is moving pretty, pretty rapidly on this issue. But my own view would be that you wanted um, quite a bit of flexibility in this area, and to think of a single macroprudential mechanism may not be the right way of thinking about it, because I think I could conceive of circumstances in which you might wish to use your, as it were, macroprudential objective uh, to engage in targeted measures, maybe simply in relation to the housing market. You know, I don't think it's inconceivable that you might want to uh, play with, play tunes on deposit rates on uh, for, for house borrowing. I mean, then that would be a fairly targeted and focused thing. Um, on the other hand, you might want to use something like uh, dynamic provisioning or indeed just a kind of macroprudential supplement across the whole banking system if you were concerned about uh, credit expansion generally. So I guess I would favour having more than one tool in this macroprudential toolkit myself. Um, the um, uh, Paolo's question up at the, at the top, and I suppose really the answer, I mean the optimistic answer to your question is that I think the incentive structure for regulators and central banks has changed in the light of the heat crisis. There is no doubt that people are now much more on the lookout for emerging uh, credit bubbles. I mean, um, you know, if you read the press now, you, we identify a credit bubble in some parts of the world every, every week. I mean, we're probably now identifying five of the next three crises, you know, every week. Uh, but for the moment, I think, there is certainly a focus um, on this. And if the bank is given control of macroprudential policy, as uh, declared today, you know, it, there's going to be some kind of expectation that the bank says something about it from time to time and does something. You know, so the, the incentive structure will have changed, I think. So I suspect that actually you probably get much different and more cautious regulatory behaviour in the next five years, even if you didn't change anything. Um, even with the existing tools, regulators would behave more cautiously. It's just obvious that that's, uh, that that's the case. And on the last point, I mean, I think, you know, in a perhaps we've slightly uh, answered that, that question. I mean, the way I would see it would be not, I don't like personally the idea of, uh, you know, the, well, the IMF's paper on altering the inflation target, etc., which came out after the uh, book had been put to bed, but I, I don't think we're particularly sympathetic to that. But I think that given the relationship which we've identified between the two forms of policy, I think there will be occasions when you want to interpret your monetary policy in pursuit of the inflation target in the light of financial stability and financial conditions and what you're doing in response to that. And you will have to 
articulate a view about the way you are pursuing your inflation target in the light of what you might be doing in pursuit of your financial stability objective. I think that's the best way I can describe can it. Can I press you on that? I mean, if you take a situation like 2005, 2006. Sorry, if you take the situation like 2005 and 2006, when there wasn't a great deal of pressure to raise interest rates, there was generally a view that the level of output was close to uh, its trend. Can you really imagine that at that stage you would, the same group of people, or even a related group of people, would set about tightening macroprudential uh, policy at, uh, at the same time? Uh, because it seems to me the problem, and I was trying to say, you know, the same problem exists with both of them. The problem was that they really had not identified that there was uh, a great emerging problem taking place in 2005 and 2006. And you know, it seems to me that it, it would be really quite extraordinary to say that you know, this group of people have identified it and we are going to take decisive action, whereas for some reason or other we don't think that interest rates should rise. Well, this is a council of despair. No. It is. Yeah, because you're saying nothing can ever be done, and there's nothing that we change which will change people's behaviour, and they will be condemned to make... This is a sort of Nietzschean theory of eternal recurrence that you're engaged in here, uh, that we will always be condemned to repeat the same uh, mistakes. The question, though, is, is really, is are they that separate? How separate are the instruments? Because, and how likely is it that one will be used when the other isn't used? Well, I think that if the bank had had a statutory financial stability objective and a tool for macroprudential regulation sitting there in the Bank of England's garage next to the governor's jacket, right. uh, and you had seen the um, growth in UK bank leverage that you saw, and you'd seen the real increases in house prices that we saw, I think people would have said, why isn't this tool, this car, being given a run out? You know, why aren't you doing anything at all in response to these uh, trends? And I think that it would have been hard, harder for the bank to answer, well, we don't think there's anything to worry about. I think it would have been harder. I'm not saying it would have been impossible, and I completely accept that there are times when there is euphoria builds up and everybody thinks everything's going fine and nothing could be done and nobody wants to take the punch bowl away. But you are giving you know, the bank another option, which doesn't seem quite so severe as the interest rate option, which it could, it could play with. And I, you know, I, I go, well, what's, what's, what's your alternative? What's a better answer? Well, I, I, mean, I, I think the, the monitoring of it um, is very important. Uh, I have a lot of sympathy with the, the principle. I think as far as possible you have to build this in, in terms of automatic mechanisms where you can, like the dynamic provisioning arrangements or some version of that, which may be even you know, more steeply uh, graded. The, it requires to me, you know, it seems to me it does require something where some of these actions come into place without having to make you know, deep judgments about where the economy is in relation to the, to the cycle. Mm. If you leave it to that, you leave it too late. And what you have to try and devise are ways in which the capital is required or the arrangements change as the problems begin to emerge. And although in the book you describe why it is that 
you know, some of the things that Charles Mills have been trying to design in the way of automatic mechanisms become, you know, are, are difficult to see actually working in, in practice. I think one has got to have quite a lot of it. You know, my, my own answer would be as much as possible has got to be of that nature mm. rather than relying upon people taking discretionary action because it seems to be the same, you know, I, well, I'm repeating myself, but, you know, when interest, you know, the same people, Okay, you, know, you would like to see the same people doing it if they're not seeing the problem on interest rates. I mean, that's my no, main challenge here. If they, they don't see a problem, a reason to put up interest rates, why would you see a problem to be taking great action on, on these other things? But, David, did you have your well, answers to the other Well, I did, just a quick one on that, and, and kind of in a question about, um, about the tools. I mean, there are tools you can, you, you can use. Um, and uh, some of them are quite old-fashioned. I mean, there's window guidance that the Bank of Japan used to, uh, my colleague there recalls that, uh, used, to, used to use, which, you know, um, decided, you know, how much you were going to lend to who. Um, there, are, there are tools, one that's been recently activated in Canada, I think, where um, property prices have started to move up. Um, and neither the central bank, which has no responsibility for supervision, nor the supervisor did anything about it. Um, but the, the finance ministry said, why don't we do something about changing the loan-to-value ratio? Um, and we will only provide some kind of support to the banks in relation to loans that have got a particular loan-to-value ratio. So there, are, there is a range of tools that you can use. Um, but some of them are quite difficult. I mean, if you're trying to apply a tool um, in a capital ratio that's going to deal with all these requirements to HSBC or to Santander, you know, with Spain and Argentina and uh, you know, the Abbey operation here, here in the UK, um, working out what this means in concrete terms is difficult. And that was, that was why when the term macroprudential was invented in the Bank of England in 1979 by the economists, um, the Borough Committee of Banking Supervisors said, well, this is all very interesting. These are terrific ideas. Um, but how, what do they mean? How are we going to apply them to individual firms? Now, um, the Borough Committee of Banking Supervisors was at that time chaired also by the Bank of England. Um, so this this is a this yeah. is a problem that has been running for some time. Okay, we have to stop. There. <laughs> uh, one more question, and then we get Thank you. Stefan Gerkesh, Central Bank of Italy. Um, David, in your presentation, you forgot to mention that the decision taken by the ECB wasn't taken into a vacuum. In the preceding days, the Eurogroup uh, ratified the uh, Greece plan to address the fiscal situation and registered the commitment of the other countries to introduce quickly new legislation in order to redress quickly their fiscal imbalances. So, <clears throat> and that is important in order to assess whether the decision taken by the Euro system was political in reality, or conversely, based on an explicit assessment of credibility of measure introduced by the relevant government. And in order to 
say that that decision taken by the Eurosystem was politically oriented. You should apply the same rule to similar action taken by other central banks. Um, I did. Well, well, well. The, the question was uh, um, uh, Stefano, who's uh, the Bank of Italy representative in London, uh, was suggesting that I was implying that the decision taken by the ECB at the weekend or to undertake these various actions uh, was uh, political and therefore might be criticised. Um, what I was intending, oh, and he was saying that actually there were objective uh, steps taken, decisions taken um, by countries that are in positions of vulnerability to undertake reforms so that therefore there was actually a perfectly sensible economic justification for the decision uh, that it wasn't political. Um, I would agree with that, um, but nevertheless people are saying uh, this is a political decision, um, it has a political consequences, um, it's differential in that you know, you're helping some people and not, not others. Um, Stefano said, well, isn't this just like the kind of thing that the Bank of England has done to you know, help out the corporate bond market, which it did, and the Americans? Well, that's true. Um, I, I think the, you're then getting into, into political rhetoric. I wasn't suggesting that these decisions were an improper thing to do, uh, but it means that um, the central bank will find itself more than it has been in, in the recent past in the political uh, arena. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, could I, on behalf of everyone, thank both of the speakers for their contributions uh, today. And